Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Hey, Humo Soldiers. I am rebooting a true crime podcast I began long ago called Children of the Void. Children of the Void explores missing child cases and cases about children who are found murdered that are rife with suspicious conduct among the child's inner circle and unanswered questions regarding the potential perpetrator. I will be co-hosting the show with Bonnie Lee, who is also the host of Writing About Crime. The first few episodes of Children of the Void are still available on all download platforms, as well as on YouTube. The new episodes will be released in late November of 2022. Please subscribe and look out for the new releases. Thank you and enjoy the show. Welcome to Human Monsters. When the streets of Phoenix ran with blood. Part 1. The Baseline Killer. Mark Gudo was born on September 6, 1964, to Willie and Alberta Gudo. He was the second last child of 13. He grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. Though there is not a consensus among his siblings regarding the family dynamic, a commonality referenced by most of them was the element of substance abuse, which exacerbated their father's propensity for intrafamilial violence. He was a tyrant who ruled the house with an iron fist, sober or not. Their mother worked as a maid starting when Mark was 13. Willie was a parking lot attendant. Working in customer service is enough to make anybody prone to violence, and unfortunately for his children, they bore the brunt of the rage that was deflected from the Karens and Darens with whom he dealt at work. Mark, like one of his brothers, was a football player in high school. While his more highly skilled brother went on to play at the college level, Mark didn't even finish high school. Mark ran afoul of the law for the first time when he was 18 years old. A tendency toward criminal behavior was not unique to Mark. 
Six of the Gudo children went on to become felons, with four doing time in federal prison. In 1982, Mark and one of his brothers were arrested for assaulting and raping a woman. The victim decided to drop the charges soon after their arrest. Speculation had it that she was unable to take the case to trial out of fear. Such is not an uncommon reaction to the prospect of having such a traumatic experience picked apart and rehashed endlessly in the courtroom. 1987. Mark Goudot was arrested for trespassing, an action that was spearheaded somehow by a heated argument at a bar. 1988. Goudot was charged with an alcohol-related violation. The nature of the crime has not been stated. August 1989, a woman named Darlene Fernandez alleged that Marc Goudot assaulted and raped her numerous times over a two-day period. After one incident of rape, he attempted to force cocaine up her nostrils. He must have been doing plenty of blow in his own right, for he followed up by beating her with a barbell and a shotgun. He threw her in a bathtub to wash away the DNA evidence of his crime. He took her to a parking lot afterwards and beat her there. When two good Samaritans attempted to intervene, he chased them away. Basic parking lot plus Gudo equals violence. That was the intergenerational math by then, apparently. Gudo's version of his relations with Darlene Fernandez was that they went to a hotel to have consensual oral sex and that the bath was also something they agreed on, the idea being that they would bathe together. In this version of events, his genitals must have been sparkling clean. As he tells it, two men broke into the unit at this juncture and held them at gunpoint, whereupon they beat Fernandez. He failed to mention how the men discovered that a naked woman happened to occupy that particular room without x-ray vision. Needless to say, that slant on the events in question didn't hold up during questioning. He ultimately pled no contest to a charge of aggravated assault. August 1990. While he was waiting to be sentenced for the outrage he committed toward Darlene Fernandez, Mark Gudo decided to pass the time by committing armed robbery. He held up a Fry's supermarket, pointing a gun at a cashier, and ordering her to give him all the money in the till. He scored $850. He wasn't finished. He ordered all the employees to line up like children headed to gym class all the way outdoors before he was arrested. He explained that his motive for doing so was he needed money for crack. No, really. When sentenced, Mark Goudot was given 15 years for assault and 21 years for armed robbery, to be served consecutively within a 21-year period. He was paroled in 2004 after serving 13 years for good behavior. He convinced the parole board that he learned his lesson and intended to become a good little employed and law-abiding, tax-paying citizen. After 13 years of intensive rumination, anybody can make bullshit smell like potpourri, and he had mastered the art. He had a wife by then, as many violent felons do, 
and she vouched for his character, parroting his claims that he was a new man and would never again backslide into a pattern of recidivism. The prison deemed him a model inmate, which also worked in his favor. With that, he was unleashed upon society. Marc Goudot made good on his vow for a while. He and Wendy purchased a house, and he embarked on a career in construction. He and Wendy went about the business of starting a family. His neighbors perceived Mark as unrapey as a man can get. What they were not aware of was his shady underbelly. He began to abuse cocaine again. He also had relations with other women, those being drug users and ladies of the evening. Seeking a wash and fold, these women wanted drugs more than he did, so they were prepared to get on their knees and then bend over and back themselves up. He would fill those holes so they could fill their own later. He also had sex with friends of the family. Though it appeared to outsiders that Mark Gudo's life was on the up and up, he was about to embark on the worst offenses of his criminal history. 2005 was a pivotal year for him, one in which he would leave one streak of blood trailing to the next from month to month. August 6th, 2005. Mark Goudot approached three teenage girls who were gathered outside a church on Baseline Road. He commanded them to walk around the back of the church at gunpoint. With the gun still pointed in their direction, he molested two of the girls. All girls were minors. Their identities were not publicized due to their ages. They described Goudot as a, quote, light-colored man of color. August 14th, 4 a.m. Goudot committed a robbery on Thomas Road. He detained a woman at gunpoint and raped her. To add outrage to injury, he finished by robbing her. September 9th. The corpse of Georgia Thompson was found on Mill Avenue. She died from a gunshot wound. September 15th. A woman was raped at gunpoint on 40th Street. What made it difficult for detectives to ascertain who was responsible for these crimes was the lack of a discernible paradigm. Initially, they were not even entirely sure that they were connected by a single offender. The next incident would adjust their lens and focus on the perpetrator with increasing clarity. Two sisters were heading home on Vineyard Road when they were accosted by a man with a gun. One of the women was pregnant and showing. The assailant kept his gun planted on the pregnant woman's stomach while he raped her and her sister. This time around, Gudo experienced some erectile dysfunction while he struggled to put a condom on. While he struggled with a prophylactic, one of the women snatched his gun away and pointed it at him. She must have seen a lot of movies and thought that operating handguns is easy, for when she tried to shoot him, she was unable to discharge a bullet, perhaps not being aware of how to disengage the safety. Gudo seized the gun from her. He pressed it against her groin. He threatened to kill them both. Before he departed, he ordered the women to spit in his hand. 
he proceeded to scoop up some mud and mixed it with their saliva. He rubbed the mixture on the areas of their bodies with which he made contact. Eventually, Gudo's DNA would be found in the mix, but not until nine months later due to an evidentiary backlog at the lab. This window of opportunity enabled Budo to continue his rampage. September 28th, two more robberies were committed on this date. One on Baseline Road and one on Central Avenue. On Central Avenue, a woman was raped and robbed. Descriptions of Gudo were given on multiple occasions, and there were now common denominators. He was a light-colored man of African-American descent, wore a floppy fisherman's hat, and had dreadlocks. November 3rd, Gudo committed several robberies and rapes throughout the course of the day, a new record. He started in the morning when he robbed somebody on 32nd Street. Ten minutes later, a woman across the street from the scene of the robbery was raped. Next, a man matching Gudo's description robbed an adult product store called Cupid's Toy Box on 32nd Street. He left with $720. Ten minutes later, a woman was abducted close to a donation bin across from Cupid's Toy Box. He raped her and forced her to drive out of the area to avoid being seen by police, who were sure to respond to the report about the robbery momentarily. November 7th, Mark Gudo returned to 32nd Street. He robbed Las Brasas Mexican Restaurant and followed up with the same at a Little Caesars, making off with a handsome take from the tills and robbing the customers before leaving. He was on a rampage. He ran right out and robbed four more people. He fired his gun in the air to ensure they understood he meant business. December 12th. Mark Gudo kicked off the holiday season by murdering 39-year-old Tina Washington on 40th Street. She was a preschool teacher homeward bound after work when he stopped her in her path with a gun in her face. This crime had a witness, a man named Peter Okoa. He heard two sounds that struck him as being similar to gunshots, but he assumed that children were getting into mischief in the alley behind his restaurant. When he had a closer look, he was horrified to find that a man was crouched over a woman with a gun in his hand. This was no innocent childhood game. The woman had been murdered. The killer pointed his gun at Okoa and pulled the trigger, but for whatever reason, the gun malfunctioned and he was not wounded. Shocked and mortified, Okoa ran inside his restaurant and locked the door. The murderer tried to break the door down, but was unsuccessful and fled the scene. Before that day, Mark Gudeau was the baseline rapist. This incident upgraded him to baseline killer status. Word would soon spread that there was a serial killer on the loose in the streets of Phoenix. December 13th, December 13th kicked off a classic serial killer cooling off period. When Gudo committed his last armed robbery for the year, he went on hiatus for two months. February 20th, 2006. Mark Gudo returned to his career of robbery, rape, and murder with a vengeance. 
He killed two women back-to-back, 38-year-old Romelia Vargas and 34-year-old Myrna Palma Roman. They were both killed in a food truck. At the time, the police assumed the murders were connected to drug-related activity. Gudo's culpability in these murders would not be proven for several months. Some people say pivotal moments come in threes, but on March 15th, Gudo killed another female coupling, 20-year-old Liliana Sanchez Cabrera and friend Chow Chu were abducted at gunpoint on their way home from work at Yoshi's Restaurant on 24th Street. Sanchez Cabrera's body was discovered in the parking lot of a fast food restaurant. Cho's corpse was found over a mile away. They were both killed by cranial gunshot wounds. March 29th. Police responded to a report that a man found a considerable amount of blood in some gravel. No other traces of human DNA were found. After a week of scorching Arizona weather, a putrid stench appeared around the same spot. The man who phoned in the report about the blood took a more extensive search. He found the remains of Kristen Nicole Gibbons. April 10th. The seven-year-old son of Sofia Nunez waited for his mother to pick him up at the end of the school day. She took the day off to participate in an immigration reform march, but she assured him she would pick him up. After waiting for a protracted period, he gave up and walked all the way home. The doors of his house were locked, and he didn't have a key. There was a space underneath the garage door of their house. It was narrow, but he was able to squeeze his way through. After searching for his mother and calling her name, he suddenly discovered that water was running out from underneath the bathroom door. He walked into the flooded bathroom and found Sophia partially nude with two bullet wounds in her head and her body submerged in crimson water. May 1st, Gudo returned to some of the same restaurants where he had committed armed robberies. Feeling nostalgic, he abducted a woman at gunpoint and raped her in her car. She recalled the incident during her testimony in court. He asked me to touch myself. At that point, I realized it was going to be a rape, and I was afraid to die. He said, suck my dick, and he was going to kill me if I didn't. I said, go ahead and kill me. He said he was going to blow my brains out in the car, and my parents were going to read about it in the newspaper the next day. He pulled the trigger, and there was a loud clinking noise. I realized that I wasn't dead, and so I got out of my vehicle and ran. June 29th. The baseline killer committed his last murder, and this time there was a witness. The most damning of all. A surveillance camera. 37-year-old Carmen Miranda was talking on her cell phone at a car wash on Thomas Road when he approached her with gun in hand. The quality of the photography was poor, so he could not be identified with the images alone, but the incident and the date were unmistakable. He walked up, pointed his gun at her, and walked her out of the frame. Her corpse was discovered about 100 yards away, behind a barber shop. She was dispatched with one gunshot wound to the head. 
After forensic scientists proved that there was a match for Mark Goudeau on his victim's remains, he was taken into custody on September 6, 2006. He was arrested by an officer who had detained him over a decade before. Additional evidence revealed that Goudeau called Sofia Nunez on her cell phone. The frequency with which he contacted her was described as, quote, obsessive. Nunez's aunt, Alicia Bell, informed police that she had met Goudeau in a bar. He claimed to be a disabled baseball player, but she didn't believe him. She told her relatives she knew he was married and that he came across as strange and creepy. She made the mistake of giving him her number, and after receiving far too many calls, he eventually left her alone. Goudeau was slapped with over 80 charges, including possession of a scheduled substance, crack, robbery, assault, kidnapping, rape, and nine murders. During the trial, the testimonies of witnesses and surviving victims was far too damaging for Goudeau to be acquitted. He was convicted and sentenced to 438 years in a federal penitentiary. There was a second trial that began in July 2011 and covered 74 separate charges, including nine of first-degree murder. It took place over four months and dealt with 13 segments of Goudeau's crime spree with each dedicated to a particular crime scene or major crime. Witnesses and victims were distraught and emotional in their retelling of the events. Goudot denied the charges and accused the investigators of being biased. He frequently referred to himself in the third person and repeated some statements. He even characterized his lawyers as incompetent. It was all in vain. On Halloween, he was found culpable of 67 felonies. November 30th, Mark Goudeau was sentenced to death. He filed an appeal insisting that each murder case should have been tried separately. The appeal was denied. Peter Okoa, who nearly met his demise during his encounter with Mark Goudeau, said, I will never forget those eyes. Never. Part 2. The Serial Street Shooters Strange and morbid events began to transpire on the streets of Phoenix. Example, in early May 2005, seven horses were killed by gunshots during the day. After sundown, Tony Mendez borrowed a trailer from his friend, Marcos Botillo, so he could take some supplies to his family who had no electricity at the time. He attached the trailer to his bicycle and took to the sidewalk. Hours later, Tony Mendez was found hanging across his bicycle on the same sidewalk. When some neighbors went out to investigate, they initially assumed it was Marcos Portillo since the trailer belonged to him. They were shocked when Portillo joined them at the scene. Mendez was killed by a gunshot from a 22 caliber rifle. 56-year-old veteran Reginald Remillard was discovered on a bus stop bench at 7th Avenue and Camelback, a spot where he frequently took naps. He wasn't sleeping this time. He had been shot in the head. June 29th. 
A quarter horse was found dead from a gunshot wound. Soon after the dead horse was found, a family departing a jack-in-the-box restaurant nearly lost their lunches when they discovered a dead man sprawled out over a sidewalk. The victim was 20-year-old David Estrada. He was killed with a 22 caliber rifle. While police investigated the scene of the crime, a Burger King nearby was robbed. Shots were fired, but nobody was harmed. July. More horses were shot with a 22 rifle. Some died before they were discovered. Others succumbed to their injuries hours later. Theories abounded regarding the motive behind killing so many horses, but experts were stumped. Eventually, canines were contributed to the victim pool, further confusing anybody in law enforcement who attempted to establish a logical paradigm based on the dates of the executions and genetic profiles of the casualties. These crimes were committed by a trio who were dubbed the Serial Street Shooters. They were comprised of Dale Hausner, Samuel Dietman, and occasionally, Dale's brother Jeff accompanied them. On November 11th, a man named Nathaniel Schaffner got into a heated argument with Dale Hausner. Hausner blew his top and began to shout at Schaffner. Schaffner hurled some kind of projectile at Hausner. Hausner pulled out his 22 rifle and tried to shoot Schaffner, but it misfired. Hausner grabbed a sawed-off 410 shotgun and shot Schaffner a new orifice. Anybody unlucky to be standing within two feet of Schaffner would have found themselves bathing in blood. Once death was dealt with that kind of brutality, it seemed almost impossible to envision Schaffner as ever having been a living entity. As far as Dale Hausner was concerned, Nathaniel Schaffner had become nothing but a blood dispenser. December 29th, it was as if a tsunami of blood washed over Phoenix. Due to bad timing, some citizens and their animal companions were submerged by the riptide. 7.30 p.m., shots were fired near a bartending school. Shortly thereafter, a man walking his dog was shocked when the dog was murdered by a drive-by shooting. Drive-bys, up to then, were species-specific, known only as a human phenomenon. Later, the serial street shooters turned their crosshairs on human targets. 44-year-old Jose Ortiz was shot to death. 28-year-old Marco Carrillo was dispatched in the same way. They shot Barbara Whitener, but she survived her injury. Another survivor was Tommy Tordai, who was shot in the neck. Three more dogs were killed. On December 30th, 21-year-old Clarissa Rowley was shot but survived. All survivors noted that the attacks were made by a man in a light tan-colored car shooting at people on the sidewalk. The police assumed at the time that he was acting alone. Following this spree of murder and attempted murder, the serial street shooters took a breather. Investigators were later informed that it was because Jeff Hausner got a job, which significantly curtailed his availability for shooting people, horses, and dogs. They dispensed with a 22 rifle. 
hunting season. The drive-by shootings resumed. This time, they were using the 410 shotgun full-time. May 2nd, 2006. A man driving a light-colored car stretched across his passenger seat and killed Kibili Tomadul with a shotgun. Less than an hour elapsed before the driver of the car made a U-turn. He shot 21-year-old Claudia Gutierrez Cruz. Some good Samaritans found her while she was still alive. She begged them to call her sister. She succumbed to her injury in hospital. May 17th, a man named Timothy Davenport was stabbed in the back before his face was slashed. Samuel Dietman was responsible for this assault. May 30th, Hames Hodge was shot. May 31st, Miguel Rodriguez and Daryl Davies were both shot in their sides. June 8th, two Walmarts in Glendale were set ablaze by arsonists. There were no deaths. That same evening, Paul Patrick was shot in his right side. June 11th, Elizabeth Clark was shot in her left hip. June 20th, Frederick Cena was shot. Tony Long was shot in his torso. July 3rd, Joseph Roberts died by gunshot. July 7th, David Perez died from a gunshot wound. July 8th, Ashley Armenta was shot in the back of her head. Miraculously, she survived. July 11th, Diane Bean, Michael Cordry, and Jeremy Ortiz were shot but survived. July 22nd, Raul Garcia was shot but survived. July 30th, 22-year-old Robin Blasnick died from a gunshot wound while en route from her parents' home to her boyfriend's house. The citizens of Phoenix were practically tripping over corpses. Sometimes destiny brings together the wrong people for the wrong reasons. Bonnie and Clyde, the Hillside Stranglers, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homoka, Nickelback. The serial street killers had the wrong things in common and brought out the worst in one another. Samuel Dietman had a lengthy criminal history that predated the Phoenix bloodbath by years. His shit sheet listed over 40 offenses, among them DUIs, theft, possession of stolen property, assault, and child support delinquency. He was a fugitive when he fled Minnesota and resettled in Arizona. Simply put, just like his two accomplices, he was the human embodiment of the essence of ass. Dietman has reported that he met Jeff and Dale Hausner at a bar in Glendale in May 2005. They became fast friends. Dietman had just lost his straight job and was kicked out of his mother's house. 
He was still knee-deep in crime, with theft, arson, and assaults among his most recent criminal pursuits. The trio would get high on crystal meth, drink alcohol, and drive around town raising hell. There were frequent drop-offs at Walmart and Target, where they would steal DVDs, alcohol, and anything else that caught their eyes. This led to shooting animals from the car's window. They graduated from this to shooting a pedestrian with a pellet gun. Just like how a meth addiction demands ever greater doses, a BB gun would not suffice, and they took up the 22 rifle. Dale Hausner invited Samuel Dietman to stay in his home with him and his daughter, 8-year-old Rebecca, in July 2005. People who knew Dale Hausner at the time said that a change came over him due to Dietman's influence. Previously, Dale had been shy and timid, but friendly. Now he didn't even greet his neighbors when they said hello. They noted that something dark seemed to seep into his psyche. One of his ex-wives knew this side of him very well. He once held her at gunpoint, threatening to shoot her. She remembered he was obsessed with serial killer Charles Starkweather, the Nebraskan teenager who killed 11 people in 1958. During the serial street murders, he collected every newspaper article about the crimes he could get his hands on. When he was arrested, there were piles of them all over the house, while others had been archived in scrapbooks. The Hausner brothers had a criminal history in their own right. They committed several robberies and acts of petty theft following crystal meth and alcohol binges. According to Samuel Dietman, they had already committed murders before he became involved. Dale Hausner took orders from clients who were keen to save money by purchasing his black market items. They would tell him what they wanted and he would steal it. When they weren't stealing, they set fires on trees, garbage cans, and in stores. They were trigger-happy, shooting animals, retail windows, and, ultimately, random pedestrians. In transcripts of their wiretapped conversations, they would laugh about the ways their victims reacted to getting shot. They would mock them by mimicking their dying words. They discussed the best shooting techniques to ensure a direct hit. When they recognized quality marksmanship in one another, they would acknowledge it. They would share their fantasies about who they wanted to shoot in the future. Samuel Dietman later claimed he deliberately avoided killing his victims, preferring to injure but never kill them. Dietman's alcoholism became his and the Hausner brothers' downfall. He revealed their culpability in the recent spate of killings to a friend at a bar. Unlike Dietman, his friend could not just sit on this information and let future targets die senselessly. He reported Dietman and his accomplices to the authorities. Dale Hausner received 87 charges. Arson, destruction of property, robbery, assault, firearm violations, and eight murders. He was convicted for 80 of the 87 charges. He was aware that the death penalty would be sought, and he didn't contest it. He was sentenced to death. He thanked the jury for this. One of them said, You're welcome. There was insufficient evidence to convict Jeff Hausner of the serial street shooter crimes. 
He was indicted for attempted murder in a stabbing attack because of information given by his brother when he testified. Jeff was already serving a seven and a half year sentence for a separate stabbing incident. This new conviction added an additional 18 years. Samuel Dietman cooperated with the investigation of Dale Hausner, and because of this, he was sentenced in July 2012 to life without the possibility of parole. Inmates on death row are rarely executed immediately. Some have waited for as long as 15 years or more before the state does them in. The process wasn't moving fast enough for Dale Hausner. He launched appeals so that the state would get a move on and put him in the grave. When this happens, the inmate is often considered to be mentally ill. Hausner had this to say about it. The state of Arizona wanted me to get the death penalty before and during my trial. I was found guilty and given six death sentences. Now that I want to get executed, suddenly my mental state is in question. So, if I am found incompetent to waive my appeals, does that mean I was also incompetent to stand trial? That's something to think about, isn't it? I am not insane. I am of sound mind. I simply wish to get the punishment handed down to me, but more quickly. I mean, really, what's a guy got to do to get snuffed out? Unable to wait it out any longer, Dale Hausner was found unconscious in his cell in July 2013. He died in hospital later that day. A toxicology report revealed he overdosed on a prescription medication called Ilavil, which is a variant of amitriptyline. I take amitriptyline for insomnia, so I can imagine that a handful of those pills would inflict some serious damage to one's neurological makeup. The following is a report by Fox 10 News about the homicide rate in Phoenix and how it compares to other cities. It's no secret over the past two years we've seen more murders in the city of Phoenix. There's been a nationwide trend to that direction as well since the pandemic began. What's being done now to bring down the deadly violence? Fox 10's investigative reporter Justin Lum is widening the scope comparing Phoenix to four other cities similar in size to see how they stack up on homicide rates. A man has died following a shooting in the West Valley earlier today. We usually know who was killed, what happened, when and where. A homicide investigation is going on after a shooting near 75th Avenue and Indian School. But it's the why that takes time. Phoenix police need the public's help in tracking down the suspect in another deadly shooting. In many cases, time takes a toll. I would never wish this on anybody. And, and, and unfortunately, I'm not the only one going through it. In 2020, homicide numbers in the city of Phoenix shot up by more than 40%, and the murder stats remained nearly the same in 2021. So what's the root cause? I couldn't tell you why. I wish I knew. I think that would probably help us uh, lower those numbers. In 2022, what's being done to decrease homicides and clear active cases as well? Fox 10 Investigates looked at four other cities with a close population size to Phoenix, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Dallas, Texas, San Antonio, Texas, and San Diego, California, each city with a range of 1.3 million to a little more than 1.6 million people. In 2021, Philadelphia's homicide rate of 35 per 100,000 people ranks first among all five cities. 
setting Philly's all-time record for murders with 562. The homicide rate in Dallas was 17.3, but officials say murders dropped from 254 in 2020 to 226 in 2021. San Antonio saw a 25% jump in homicides, totaling 161 last year. San Diego's murder rate in 2021, the lowest, 4.1 per 100,000 with 57 homicides. Phoenix ranks third on this list with a rate of 12.3 homicides per capita, 198 homicides in 2021, not far off the 200 mark in 2020, coming off 139 in 2019. Brenda Gilliam Miller says her daughter is more than a statistic. How often do you come here and just reminisce and how much does it actually make you just want her back even more? Well. I'm just finally getting to a point where I can look at pictures and not cry, so... At 23, Destiny McLean rarely went out. Instead, she enjoyed family time. She danced to the beat of her own drum. She didn't conform to what people felt she should be. She was herself, you know. She, she wasn't the type to try and be cool, you know, and try and dress a certain way because other people are dressing that way. Destiny was just Destiny. Ring surveillance video shows Destiny leaving her home for the last time. On the night of July 17, 2021, she took an Uber to Karumba nightclub to see a longtime friend. Several hours later, Brenda says she could not reach her daughter, but she had her cell phone location and followed it, arriving at 17th Street and McDowell only to find Phoenix police and crime tape. So I waited for what seemed like an eternity, and I went back and I pulled out a picture of my daughter. I said, look, this is my daughter. You know, is she hurt? Brenda learned a homicide investigation was underway. The victim was a female. So at that point, I knew it was my child. And then he told me that, you know, the detective wanted to talk to me. So, I was, you know, I waited. And then that's when they told me that, you know, Destiny had um, been shot. Shot and killed while ordering from a food truck. Since Destiny's murder, leads are hard to come by. But Phoenix police did release video of a car suspected to be involved in the drive-by shooting. Meanwhile, Phoenix PD is facing a shortage of 400 officers. Lieutenant David Albertson with the Homicide Unit says patrol officers are crucial to investigations. Preserve the evidence, secure crime scenes, uh, identify uh, witnesses that, that ultimately help us. So with an officer shortage, you see a little bit of an increase in response times and ultimately that hurts us because we may potentially lose some evidence or lose a witness, things like that. I reached out to Philadelphia, Dallas, San Antonio and San Diego police to see what strategies the departments are working on. DPD and SAPD responded. Dallas implemented more of a community-driven plan to change behaviors of high-risk offenders, officials say. Both departments increased police visibility in areas where violent crime is concentrated, a tactic known as hotspot policing. Lieutenant Albertson says Phoenix PD is already using. We pay close attention to the statistics uh, where those hotspots, as you say, are, and we definitely shift resources, not only manpower, but technology resources as well. Phoenix PD is partnering with ASU to study and address rising crime along 27th Avenue between Indian School and Northern. The 27th Avenue Corridor Community Safety and Crime Prevention Plan approved by City Council in February, focusing on outreach, education, and partnerships to specifically target violent crime. Technology solutions include gunshot detection, mobile license plate readers, and temporarily installed fixed cameras. Three community prosecutors will be hired, along with four police assistants, a neighborhood inspector, and specialists. The two-year pilot project will cost $5.7 million. In Phoenix PD, they've been working really hard to try to get ahead of the problem, man. Um, based on the quarter, the quarter estimates for the first quarter of 2022, it looks like 
some of the things are paying off. Jesenia Pizarro is a professor at ASU School of Criminology and Criminal Justice. She tells me a proactive approach to violent crime is just as important as a reactive one. We could invest in these communities. We could provide activities for youth. We could provide better education. We could provide health care. We could provide school lunches. All these things that we know will actually help in prevention. Pizarro researches situational traits behind homicides and the lifestyles of victims and their offenders. She says there's no one-size-fits-all answer to deadly violence. So even though the culmination is the same, right, there's somebody dead, the root causes of it are different, so you need to tackle it based on what those root causes are. How do you explain just what is happening in your community and being a victim I, of it? I can't explain what is happening because I don't understand it, you know, because I grew up out here. The way it is right now, it's just, it's ridiculous. If there is a silver lining, Lieutenant Albertson points to Phoenix PD's homicide clearance rate. From 2020 through 2021, it's hovered around 73%, an improvement compared to 2019 and years prior. To see a year where we have 41% more homicides and we're able to increase our clearance rate 10%, I mean, that's pretty phenomenal. Brenda is hoping her daughter's murder will be solved and cleared so she can have closure and justice. My daughter didn't deserve it. You know, so I just feel that who's responsible should be held accountable. On an issue such as violent crime, police executives in big cities across the country do collaborate. For example, the Major Chiefs Association. Phoenix Police Chief Jerry Williams is the president. The purpose is to share ideas and strategies between these agencies. This is this is really tricky stuff because we don't seem to have a clear answer why this spike during COVID. Yeah, there's no black or white answer here. There's a lot of gray area and we're crunching more numbers specifically between these five agencies that we study. The number of officers the departments have, the budgets these cities have adopted. What we're learning is it's not about how many officers a department has, how much money the city has, but the usage and how strategies are being implemented. Yeah, because San Diego, you were saying, you know, lowest rate. And they Fewer have 1,900 officers. Philly, a lot of crime, and the most yeah. officers. And we've gathered more of this data. You can go to fox10phoenix.com slash investigations to see uh, what we've gathered. Okay. Justin, thank you. Thank you. In this report by AZ Family 3 TV, True Crime Arizona podcast, and CBS 5 News, Phoenix police officer Sean Drainth died under strange and suspicious circumstances. This is the last for Sergeant Sean Drent. Good night, sir. You will be deeply missed. Rest in peace. Frequency's clear. Because of Sean, I know I'm a better husband, father, friend, and officer. Hearts were shattered in Phoenix. October 2010, Phoenix Police Sergeant Sean Drent found dead near the state capitol while on duty always had a smile on his face, kind of guy that, you know, kids would run up to and hug on the street. This crushed his mom, Diane. The two were very close. Sean was only 34 years old. He was her only child. Everybody should love their job that much in their lifetime. Everybody should. Everyone wanted to know who killed Sean and why. Our thoughts and prayers are certainly with his family. And we will be doing everything humanly possible to find out exactly what occurred. But that's when things took a turn in the investigation. 
When did it start becoming this suicide versus homicide debate? Well, that's an interesting question because when they first came here and they told me what happened and all that, there, there's an altercation, you know, he was killed. Um, and then I, we turned on the news like that night and I saw a reporter saying apparently it was suicide. And I was like, what? You know, I, because that had never come up and all the guys that had been here, that never came up. One week earlier, life for Sean Drenth was seemingly great. His mom, Diane, said he had just been promoted to the South Mountain Precinct and was so passionate about police work. Was he happy with that Oh, he Yes, he loved it. He, um, it was the first time he was in charge of people, and he loved it. He absolutely loved it. Sean was married to his high school sweetheart, Colleen. Sean and Colleen were very happily married, and Sean always made a point of having lunch with her, and he always called her several times a day. Life was going well, and then Diane got a knock on her door on October 18th. I was at home, and it was probably about, what, 2 o'clock in the morning, maybe, um, when the, the doorbell rang. She answered the door to find a group of officers standing there with Colleen, and she knew the worst had happened. It goes through my mind constantly. It's just, it, it will never go away. Sean was found dead under a tree near the Arizona State Capitol. His lifeless body was found with a shotgun wound under his chin, his shotgun lying on his stomach. His handgun was found on the ground nearby, his uniform dirty on his knees. Officers immediately rushed to the scene, while those at Diane's house said it looked like Sean had been involved in some kind of fight. Phoenix PD began investigating. But we simply can't jump to conclusions until we get more facts about the case. But soon the conversation changed to something Diane never expected. There was something off about the crime scene. Things didn't add up. Officers began to believe Sean had taken his own life and staged it as a homicide. I mean, there's not one, one, one little bit of me that ever believed for a nanosecond that it was suicide. I mean, I knew my son, he was very happy. Well, it's completely ludicrous. That would have to be a planned suicide, first of all. There's nothing in Sean's path. I have challenged different reporters, please go find, all I want is the truth, honestly. All I want is the truth. I said, please go find anything in Sean's life that would lead you to believe that he would plan a suicide. Because the facts of this case are blurred, we took the case to a private investigator unaffiliated with Phoenix PD. Kevin Boonsher is a retired Tempe police sergeant and now hosts his own podcast called I Barely Got Here that chronicles his 24 years in law enforcement. We sat down with him for a couple hours to go over every detail of this case and asked him at the end to give us his expert opinion on whether he believes this was a homicide or suicide. So this case, was not with Tempe PD, it was with Phoenix PD, but you were still working for Tempe PD when this happened. I was. Do you remember the conversations that you and your other police officers had about this case at the time? I do. Um, you know, anytime a cop is killed, obviously that's a, that's a big deal. It's a big case. It's something that you don't forget. Um, it doesn't happen very frequently. And when that case first broke, um, some of my guys work task forces with other cities and everything else, and somebody was with a task force that had a Phoenix people involved. So they were kind of up to date almost immediately as to what was unfolding. And everything at that point in time indicated to us that this was the homicide. 
you know, first and foremost, it's a terrible tragedy to have happen. And of course, in the back of your mind, I mean, I'm a cop. I was a cop for almost a quarter century. I still have all those feelings. I feel terrible for the widow and the family and all those other things. But as a cop also, you, you know that you can flip the switch and you have to look at things subjectively. That's exactly what Kevin did. We started with the crime scene itself. And I think the biggest problem overall with the scene was it was completely destroyed and contaminated. It was terrible. You cannot give up your integrity of managing the scene. You can't let people come in and out of there because one footstep, one uh, sneeze, I mean, anything can contaminate that. And my understanding was, well, it's not my understanding, it's fairly true. There were dozens of There officers. were dozens of guys, and I get it. I understand all of those things. I mean, this is your brother, there's been killed. Of course, your immediate assumption is gonna be homicide. So you're not thinking straight, you're just rushing in there. So, I mean, would you go as far as to say that Phoenix PD botched that initial investigation from the start in terms of the crime scene itself? You know, botched is a strong word, and I hate to use it, but I think that any Phoenix person, Phoenix supervisor, would admit that that's exactly what happened. But even with a compromised crime scene, there was evidence that was concrete. The fatal gunshot wound was from Sean Drenth's shotgun, not his handgun, which was found on the ground over a fence. So you start to look at where the guns were found. The fact that the shotgun was used, which is typically, and again, I can't say for sure, but is typically secured inside of the patrol car. How did that shotgun get unsecured and out? Sean would have had his handgun and a backup handgun on him. Because a lot of people don't know that a cop is carrying a backup and or they don't know where it's at. So, you know, your primary method would be that primary handgun on the, in the holster on the waist. And then a secondary would potentially be knowing, finding, acquiring the backup that's on the ankle. For them, he, she, them to take the time to not only um, incapacitate him enough to get that shotgun, which you can't just get in there and grab it. Most of them have a keyed access. And most people who are not police officers really don't even understand a lot of how those mechanisms work to secure those rifles or shotguns within the squad car. So it, it would take some work. Kevin says another oddity is how Sean was found if a fight with a suspect or another person went down. Just a basic fight that goes to the ground, you got more than scratches on your, your uniform pants. Stuff is torn up. You've got scrapes, you've got elbow scratches, you got, you know, if they happen to hit you, you got bruising and abrasions on your face. And if you were fighting for your life, I think it would be much more severe than dirt on your knees. The questions kept coming. Why would Sean only have dirt on his knees if he was in a fight? How did another person get access to a shotgun locked in the police car instead of using one of the two handguns Sean had on him at the time? I wouldn't say that on its immediate face right away any cop would walk up and go, oh, this is staged, of course. Um, but as you start looking into things, and again, comparing homicide scenes to this one, there were things that started to look a little strange. I do believe it was a, a suicide stage to look like a homicide. And the shotgun is one of the elements that lends me, or leads me to that conclusion. And the reason for that is, as a cop, um, we know 
that a handgun round to the head is not an definite 100% life ender, if that makes sense. I mean, I personally know of three people who shot themselves in the head, both when I was working and since, that they didn't die. And they actually recovered um, to varying degrees of recovery. So you take that knowledge base of being aware of that and having been on the scenes or hearing things. And again, that, the three that I know of firsthand, I know of 10 more secondhand that occurred. That's not the case with a rifle or a shotgun. I mean, if you use, those things are so much more devastating and cause such a huge um, wound channel, as they would call it. And, you know, I don't want to get gross and I don't want to get into the specific details, but I've never seen a suicide with a long gun or a shotgun that was not fatal. But many had another question that doesn't add up. Remember, he was shot under the chin. His shotgun was lying on his stomach. What about the recoil? of the shotgun. So when they found him, right, shotguns laying like this, wound is right here. There's only about four inches between the gun and that wound. So many people have asked, well, if he had shot himself, how would it have laid so just perfectly? Just where it was. Right where it was. Can you give some insight on if that's even possible? If a, a police officer was struggling with someone who had their shotgun, I don't know how that placement of the weapon could occur. I mean, obviously it could if they were incapacitated, I suppose, but that's just a very strange wound location. If there was a struggle involved and then he was shot. Was he kneeling? Was he laying down? Was he standing up? I don't know. We have no idea, but all those combinations of things could lend themselves to that gun going any different direction. It would be laying on the side. Right. Of course, because probably 99 times out of 100, that's what would occur but you still have that one time. And really strange, weird things happen that, you know, you look back on them even now and you, you still don't know why or how it, how it happened or can explain it, but the fact is it did. If Sean wanted to commit suicide, why go to the lengths to make the scene look like a homicide? And I think he felt that this is a way for me to try to provide for my family. And the thing that we haven't brought up at all was the fact that there were criminal charges pending against this police sergeant for some crimes that were committed within the department. Over two dozen Phoenix police officers were being investigated for fraud. This is about number of hours worked at an off-duty sites that they were being paid for that they didn't work. Sergeant Sean Drent was part of the investigation. And as I understand it, he would have met the AG's office criteria for grand jury consideration. Ultimately, four police officers were indicted for theft shortly after Sean's death. Sean likely would have been indicted too. Some in the community thought that officers involved in the fraud investigation could have been involved in Sean's death. Do we have police officers who are suspects? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, do we have police officers who we are looking at as leads in this case right now? Yes, we do. Kevin says the fraud investigation could have been weighing heavily on Sean, even if he didn't show it. When your persona and your your whole being is being a cop who is this great person, but you know this serious issue is coming down the pipe and it's going to definitely blacken your um, reputation, that makes people do things. 
That's why the suicide rate is so horrible in law enforcement. It's kind of like that dirty little secret. A lot of cops take their lives, and a lot of times it's the same thing. We find out, and then you're like, I had no clue. I had no idea that person was going through whatever they were going through. Cop suicide is a huge problem, and it's really pushed under the rug. I think he was by himself. I don't think he would have brought someone else into that. I think that would have been a burden that he wasn't willing to share with somebody. For the same reason that he didn't tell anybody what he was going to do. I think he wanted everything to be status quo. I asked his mom about the fraud investigation. Do you believe that incident was involved in his death? I really don't. I think it was put out there. Here's the thing, that investigation had been going on for years and we knew about it. It wasn't new. Sean knew about it. It wasn't new. Sean was promoted to sergeant even though that investigation was going on. And then I feel like somebody who knew about it made sure it got out there as the, uh, the only motive they could ever find for suicide. The medical examiner ruled it a suicide too, but there are aspects of that conclusion that don't make sense either. If you really thought it was suicide, maybe you would have interviewed his mother because they never interviewed me. Phoenix police never talked to you? Never. The detectives were in my house twice. They never talked to me. Should Phoenix police have interviewed his mom about that? I would think typically they would have. Um, I'm a little surprised they didn't, especially when you have a very high profile case like this. They'll interview people that are almost completely removed from the issue just to make sure that they cover all the bases and they do, you know, reach out for that tiny tidbit of information. And even more bizarre, what's happened with Sean's widow, Colleen, and the city of Phoenix. At the end, they they ruled in Colleen's favor uh, for full benefits. We talked to Colleen on the phone. Yes, I have the full benefits of line of beauty death. All the people with the money have paid out line of beauty death. This has huge significance if Sean's death was ruled a suicide. That wouldn't happen in full if it was a suicide, right? That is my understanding. You know, if there is a suicide, uh, the officer's family does not receive full line of duty death benefits. Is that the city saying, we don't think it was a suicide? I think you have to take a look at how lawsuits are settled. Frequently, those lawsuits are settled with a payout. Phoenix police told me the case is closed. And if the widow is pulling full line of duty death benefits, then the conclusion would be that it was labeled as a homicide, but if it's labeled as a homicide that has not been solved, I don't know how that could be closed. No one's ever going to know really what occurred there. The Drenth family isn't accepting suicide, and they aren't keeping quiet about what they think happened. Do you think he was killed by somebody he knew? Yes. It had to have been somebody he knew, and I think it had to be more than one person out there to be quite honest, because I, he would have had to have been distracted somehow, even by a friend. I just, it had to be someone he knew. I absolutely believe that. I do believe it was somebody in law enforcement, and I believe they did know how to stage the scene. Diane thinks her son went to that location for a specific reason, to meet with another police officer. To this day, I still believe very strongly that he knew something 
and that he was meeting with someone to tell them, look, you know, this can't go on, I'm not going to cover this, you got to fix this, whatever it was. Unfortunately, we don't know what that is, we've never figured it out. I think that he knew something that he hadn't shared with anyone else because he would keep your secret and give you a chance to make it right. Sean's love for police work was obvious. He loved working for Phoenix PD, but Diane thinks among the department he loved was the person who took his life. So just to be clear, do you believe it was somebody within Phoenix Police Department that killed Sean? I do. I do. I believe it's somebody that he knew in the Phoenix Police Department. I asked the Phoenix Police Department to sit down for an interview with me about the case. Not only did they say the case is closed, but they told me nobody is available for interviews at this time. Do you think it's surprising that Phoenix PD won't do an interview with me about it? No, not at all. It's a hot topic. I wouldn't do it. If I was the chief of police, I'd say, we're not gonna do that. Um, because what do they have to gain? I asked Kevin about the theory that a Phoenix police officer pulled the trigger on Sean Dreth. Is that possible? Do you think that's probable? Possible, yes. Probable, no. The pain his death has caused so many over the decades is heartbreaking. He would, he would want us to go on, but it's hard to do that. There's been no closure for anyone, no definitive answer of what happened out there and why he died. Although we interviewed Kevin for the story, several law enforcement experts have also told me they believe it was a suicide staged as a homicide. It doesn't detract from the fact that it's terrible. I feel horrible. I mean, you almost feel guilty sitting in my chair telling you these things because obviously, you know, his family and his widow, well, they're probably not going to be real happy with what I have to say. But at the same time, um, I just believe that you have to put out the information. Sean's mom and widow Colleen are adamant it was not suicide. And the fight for justice for Sean has taken an emotional toll on Colleen over the years. It's exhausting to think about. It's frustrating. But mostly it's sad. It angers me. But overall, sad. Diane will fight for her son until the day she dies. But until then, she can only hope somebody will come forward with something new, anything that could help her figure out what happened that night. It's been 10 years. Please, if you know something, please. You know, we just want answers. Like I said, it's not even that I want somebody punished or, you know, sent to prison for the rest of their life. I, but I want to know why. I want to know what was so bad that I lost all the rest of those years with my son. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.
Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>